Good morning. Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 6? While you're turning there, I have a couple of announcements for you. Um, Continue to pray for those that uh, are are sick this morning. I think of uh, the Duster Winkles. They're doing much much better. Um, They uh, wanted me to let you know how thankful they are for your prayers and so please continue to pray for them. And the Corvinans have been sick as well with COVID. So we ask that you would continue to pray for them. Um, also, I wanted to kind of let you know a little bit about what's going to go on the next month here. We love to celebrate Advent around here and to focus on the Scripture and what God has done through Christ. And so over, over the month of December, <clears throat> I'm planning a sermon series I suppose we'll get back to 1 Timothy next year. Um, but I'd like to do a sermon series in December on the humanity of Christ. And just to, to do some, some doctrinal study with you and, and look at how it applies to our salvation. And so I'm planning five sermons. Um, we've got five opportunities to fellowship together in December, four Sundays, and then we'll have our Christmas Eve communion. That's that, that uh, fifth or that fourth Sunday there, we'll look at the necessity of Christ's humanity with respect to our salvation. And so I'm looking forward to that, looking at the virgin birth, the beginning of Christ's humanity, the experience of Christ's humanity. He was a real human being, and he experienced the things of, of the fall except for sin. Um, the sinlessness of Christ's humanity, of course the necessity, and, and then the duration of Christ's humanity. Is Christ still, does he still have a human nature? And so. We'll look at some of those things together, Lord willing. So, yeah, if you would, please uh, plan your calendar for our fellowship together. And uh, again, we're planning to have a, a Christmas Eve communion on the well, on Christmas Eve, so 6.30. Um, and then also, I think the 15th is a Wednesday. We're planning to have a, a Christmas cookie fellowship here at Wednesday night, 6.30. And we'll get back to our contest for those of you that enjoyed making Christmas cookies, and uh, so we'll have more information about that coming, just some time to share it together and, and to encourage one another. Well, let's pray together, and then we will read the Word of God. Father, we are grateful that You have made us Your sons and daughters, all who have trusted in Christ. We belong to You, not only by physical creation, but then spiritual creation. We are new creatures in Christ. We are your children. You are our Father. And that is a glorious thing that will never be taken away from us. Nothing can change the relationship that you have made through Christ with us. And Father, we long to see that your name We long to see your name exalted in the earth, in our lives, in our thinking, in our church family, that you would be esteemed, that you would be known in your greatness and in your glory and loved and feared and trusted in. Father, use your word to Bring your character 
before our eyes so that we would glorify you. And Father, as, as you do that in us, we pray that your kingdom, your reign would be advanced in us and your will would be done in our lives. Father, we ask that you would provide all that is necessary, even in this service. And as we go from here, provide all that we need, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, through your providence, to see that your will is done, that your reign is advanced, and that your name is esteemed in our lives. We pray that you would let us see the glory of Christ in our salvation, his saving work to provide us with all that we need, not only for justification, but sanctification and glorification, that we are kept and we will be completed. And that this time on earth is so short compared to eternity, and that we have been secured in your love for eternity because of Christ. I pray, Father, that there, if, there was, if there is someone who listens to this time of studying your word, does not know you, that is not yet real, has not yet forgiven through faith in Christ, that you would help them to see the glory of Jesus Christ as a Savior, and that they would reject their self-righteousness and anything they would try to do to please you, and that they would trust in Christ alone and His perfect work, His righteousness, His atoning death, His resurrection. We pray that you would do a great work of salvation and sanctification through your word today, that you would be honored and glorified. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Apostle Paul often used the analogy of war to describe the Christian life. We've been looking at these things over the last few weeks. And certainly, the daily battles against the temptations of Satan and our flesh feel and really truly are a spiritual war, a battle. Listen to a few verses from the Apostle Paul and Peter that describe this sort of thing. Romans 7.23 says, I see, Paul is speaking, he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's spiritual war right there. The war between the flesh, that which longs to sin, and the Spirit, that which longs to please God. And of course, that's the condition of every true believer. An unbeliever does not desire to please God. Romans 8 tells us that. But once a person becomes a believer and trusts in Christ and are filled with the Spirit, they have a new conflict within them. This conflict against the flesh and the Spirit. Peter talks about this as well. 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you <clears throat> as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 2 Corinthians 10.3-4, and 4, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, chapter 6, 1 Timothy, he says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which 
you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul tells Timothy in his last letter, this is the last letter Paul ever wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says that Timothy share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Of course, some of Paul's very final words before he was martyred, and you know them well. 2 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The Christian life is a war. It is a life of spiritual struggle. Because we live in a body of flesh. And we live in a world that opposes God. And the evil one is working against us. But we have all we need to stand and to fight the good fight of the faith. How can we come to the end of our earthly life as followers of Christ and say the same thing that Paul said at the end of his earthly life? Do you want to say the same thing Paul said on your deathbed? Think about that. To to prove ourselves to be genuine believers, we must persevere in faith to the end. So how do we do that? That means a daily battle against the flesh, against the evil one, against the philosophies of the world that are filled with lies. And Ephesians 6 tells us how. It tells us how to do that. Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, really puts into this text what it looks like on a daily basis to persevere in faith. Let's stand together one more time. We'll read this text and then talk about the last three pieces of armor, Lord willing. Ephesians 6, 10-20. This has been our text. Now this is the fourth week we've looked at this. And let's look and see what Paul says about standing strong in the Lord and fighting the good fight of the faith. Let's read it together in unison. Ephesians 6, 10-20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Thank you. Please be seated. Again, notice the main commands of this text. 
Be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. Stand, having fastened on the belt, the breastplate, shoes. Verse 16, take up the shield of faith. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. These are the battle commands from our general to fight the good fight of the faith because we have an evil one, an enemy who is coming at us doing battle with thoughts and concepts and philosophies and lies. And so we're called to fight back by standing. It's a spiritual fight. It's not a physical fight. But we can stand because God has provided everything we need. And so the main idea of this text, as we have discussed in your outline, you can see it at the top of the, the half sheet of paper. Be strong in the Lord and put on God's armor so that you may be able to stand in the war. Well, how do we do that? Four points we've been looking at, and <clears throat> we're still in the third point. Number one was embrace the ability for war. <clears throat> we need strength. We don't have the strength in and of ourselves. So the Apostle Paul says to be strong in the Lord. Our strength to fight against the evil one comes, first of all, in being positioned in Christ. That's salvation. We're positioned in Christ. And everyone who's then positioned in Christ also has his strength. Secondly, Paul calls us to envision the adversary in the war. And in verses 12 and following, he, he talks about, first of all, the evil one. The schemes of the devil. The end of verse 11. We also talked about the demonic army, which is detailed in verse 12. It's a fighting army. It's a spiritual army. An army of authority and power and organization. An army of darkness. An army of evil. And of course, we ask the question, why do we need to know even about the devil and his army? And the answer that we talked about is that it's not to cause us to fear, to feel in terror of the powers of darkness, but to be watchful, to be alert, to be ready, and to be prepared. And certainly to run to Christ for His strength. The third aspect that we've been looking at in order to stand and be strong in the Lord and fight the good fight of the faith is number three, to employ the armor for the war. We cannot stand against the evil one in his temptations and his false teaching that he propagates in the world without his armor. We, can't, we need the armor of the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. 2 Corinthians 10.4 The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. That's why we can stand. These weapons that we're given are powerful. The strength of the Lord gained by utilizing the full armor of God is stronger than all the power of the wicked, one commentator writes. So what is the armor of God and how do we appropriate it? And this is what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We've, we've looked at the first three pieces of armor so far. We stand, right, having... Put on, having fastened on the belt, the breastplate, and certainly shoes put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, as we look this morning at the second three pieces of armor, you will notice that the action words here for putting on the armor change a little bit. Instead of stand, 
having fashioned on, having put on, having put on the readiness, which signals a preparatory action, Paul writes then in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up. So this, in all circumstances, would be better translated, in addition to. In addition to the first three pieces of armor. In addition to the breastplate, the belt, and the shoes. Now take up the shield of faith. Why is that important? Well, it seems to highlight when, when we say we're not, we're not talking so much about a preparatory activity as this immediate, critical, defensive, spiritual maneuver that we must execute as our enemy approaches. We've already strapped on the belt of truth. We've already put on the breastplate of righteousness. We've already put on the shoes. Now, in addition to all that, right now, take up the shield of faith. Take up the helmet of salvation. Take the sword of the Spirit. In other words, these last three pieces of armor need to be close at hand, at the ready, and immediately taken up the moment you see spiritual danger approaching so that you can hold your ground and continue to stand. Be wise, be skillful, be exercised with these last three pieces of armor because at any moment when the evil one comes against you, you will need to know how to wield them well. That's the idea. I I like to notice those sorts of things. Why You you come to a text like this and you say, first Paul says, stand having fastened these on, and all of a sudden in verse 16 he says, take them up. Why? Why the change of action? Well, these last three pieces of armor really come to play in our defense immediately when the evil one approaches, when we are confronted with lies, when we are confronted with temptations. Take them up. Take them up right then. So then what are these next three pieces of armor that we need to use immediately when the evil one approaches? Well, letter D in your outline there, take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith. There's an illustration that Paul gives here. The shield. There were two kinds of shields in Paul's day. There was a small, round shield that you would wear on your, if you were a soldier, wear on your left arm. And it was used often for very close hand-to-hand combat. Maybe two and a half feet in diameter. But that's not the kind of shield that Paul's referring to here. It's a different word. And if you were to look at it in the Greek language, you would see two different words describing these two different shields. The kind of shield that Paul is referring to is a large rectangular shield. It's maybe two and a half feet wide, but it's four to four and a half feet tall. And it was made from heavy planks of wood that were glued together. And then it would also be wrapped in materials like a canvas. And then after that, uh, like an animal skin. And, and many times, these large shields were convex, which would enable them to deflect uh, a projectory coming at them a little better. They were also sometimes made to interlock so that a whole wall of shields could be presented against the enemy. And these shields were certainly meant for total body protection. I want you to also notice that Paul 
in this verse talks about something that the evil one throws at us or an illustration of, of what he throws at us. He, he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, faith this massive uh, rectangular shield that he's talking about with which you can extinguish, can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Flaming darts. Soldiers would often take an arrow or a dart or a spear and they would wrap the end of it in a, in a material like hemp or straw or flax and then they would smear over that wrapped head with, with, a, with a pitch, something flammable, and then they'd light the end of it and throw it or shoot it and, and it would be ignited and, and of course at the enemy and, and cause in, uh, flame to break out on the enemies. So these large shields that Paul talks about were often then dipped in water. Probably be pretty heavy after that, but dipped in water so that the materials would soak up the water. And so then when you'd have one of those projectories coming, coming at the shield, it would stick in it and the, wet, the wetness of the shield would douse the flame that was brought by the dart or the arrow or the, or the spear. And so that's, that's the image that comes across here with Paul. This large shield can extinguish flaming darts of the evil one. Now, what is our armor? That's just the illustration. What's Paul getting at here? Well, our spiritual shield is what? It's faith. Faith is our shield. Faith is a precious spiritual gift from God to every one of His children. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not your doing, it's a gift. This faith is a gift from God. But what does Paul mean when he says our, our shield is faith? What kind of faith is Paul talking about? How is faith a spiritual shield against the flaming darts of the evil one? Well, faith, I think in our day, we need to say it like this. Faith is trusting God. It's trusting God. The only kind of faith that's real is that which has its object in God Himself. Faith is simply trusting God. Resolute trust in God in any and every circumstance. It's a childlike trust in God because of who He is. That's why we trust in God. We don't trust in God like we trust in anything else. You know, we, when we trust something created, we often throw a weak hope at it. I hope that comes through, but not in God. A trust in God is, is a trust that is set in an object that cannot fail. An omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, sovereign Creator. And we trust Him. We trust Him by trusting His Word. We believe that everything He says to us is absolutely true. That's, that's, that's the shield of faith. I believe what God says. I believe. I trust His character. The Bible tells me what God is like. And therefore, I trust Him because of who He is. I trust His promises to me. We trust His provisions. We know that we are absolutely dependent and helpless apart from God. And that all life and breath and everything comes from Him and Him alone. We trust His actions. We trust His timing for things. We trust His purposes behind 
all that He does. That He is who He says He is. That He will do what He says He will do. That His grace is sufficient for us. We trust that He's telling us the truth about all things. We trust that He's wise and loving in all that He does. That He will fulfill His good purposes for our good and His glory. And to trust God like that, of course, we could go on and on describing Christian faith, but a short summary, to trust God like that is a shield to us against the flaming darts of the evil one. That kind of trust is, is full soul protection against all the flaming darts of the evil one, all the spiritual assaults of Satan. And think about this. Remember we talked about how the, the shields can interlock, these kinds of shields? Well, the Spirit-filled faith of other brothers and sisters in Christ can strengthen each one of our faith individually. That's how God designed the gathering of the body of Christ. We, as we encourage one another and exhort one another to trust God no matter what, in every situation, because of what He has said, because of who He is. This is one of the many blessings of life in the body of Christ. Joint spiritual effort to stand against the evil one in the day of evil and take up the shield of faith to make a wall of faith against the evil one. How often has it been where you've been in the depths of a deep trial and you come together with other people in Christ and your faith is strengthened and you feel like you have a shield in front of you now to block what the evil one is doing in your life. I know that's happened with me. I'm sure it's happened with you. Like interlocking shields. And this is, this is a piece of spiritual armor, notice, that will defend us against how many of Satan's attacks? How many? All of them. That's something to notice. Do you see that? All the flaming darts of the evil one. All of them. God-given faith. God-empowered faith. Resolute trust, childlike trust, has the ability, the text says, you will be able. It doesn't come out quite so good here in the ESV, which it's the word of, of, of ability, spiritual ability. You will be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You'll be able to quench them, to extinguish them, to put out the fire. All of them. All of them. The flaming darts of the evil one. Resolute, childlike trust in God is our shield. So, let me ask you as we think about this, are you resolved by God's grace to trust God like a child trusts its father when you are in the midst of threatening circumstances? When you are in the midst of a temptation? Do you trust God? Because our enemy will attack. How does he attack? Well, three of the words that we've been talking about, I think I gave you a list of 13 or 14, where the shield of faith is clearly our defense. Doubt. Satan will throw the arrow of doubt. Denial. Disobedience. Think about doubt and denial with me for a moment. Again, from the beginning, he has been throwing this dart, this flaming dart of doubt. Doubt about the truth. Doubt about the character of God. Do you realize, dear ones, listen, do you realize that 
Satan delights in doing you harm? There's a, there's a song that was written by Fernando Ortega. It's called Eternal God. And one of the verses says this, Our cold and ruthless enemy, his pleasure is our harm. Rise up, O Lord, and he will flee before our sovereign God. Satan tries to harm the image bearers of God. And he often tries to harm us by orchestrating difficult circumstances into our lives. Remember something. Though Satan wants to harm us for our spiritual ruin, even though God allows him to work those wicked things, God allows him to alter our physical, temporal circumstances for our spiritual eternal good and His glory. For example, as he did with Job. What did, what did Satan do to Job? You've got to remember that part in Job chapter 1, 2. God, listen, God allowed Satan to send terrorists to Job's plantation. Killed his servants. Slaughtered his livestock. Satan was behind that. You remember that? You can't miss that. You've got to see that. It, Satan was allowed to send weather to Job. Right? Weather crushed the house of his son and killed his children. Satan was behind the weather. Disease racked body, Job's body for a long time. Satan was behind that. And in, in all of that, Job's wife came to him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? And then when Job's friends came to him, they misunderstood what God was doing and gave him discouraging counsel by and large. And Satan attacks us in ways like this. Maybe to not that level of severity, but in ways like that. Not primarily though, listen, to disturb our earthly lives but he does disturb our early lives to cause us to doubt God and deny God. That was the point. Because Satan came to Job, or, or Satan came to God and said, If you let me do all this stuff to him, he will curse you. He, he just loves you because of what you've given to him. And so Satan was allowed to get at Job to a certain degree, right? Only as far as God would let him. His goal was to destroy Job's faith and dishonor the glory of God. That's what Satan's goal is. And he tempts us to do the same thing. He tempts us to look at God through the cloudy and cracked lens of our circumstances. rather than to look at our circumstances through the clear and flawless lenses of God's character. Do, do you understand that? So, so for example, something may happen to you and you're like, I can't, this is crazy. And you begin to think about God through the horrible circumstance, through the lens of the horrible circumstance, and you begin to judge God and, and misjudge God through the pain. Instead, we've got to take those glasses off and put on the glasses of faith that sees God for who He is and begin to evaluate our circumstances through the character of God. And that sets everything to right. 
He tempts us to evaluate God through the lens of pain in our losses rather than evaluate the loss of earthly things through the lens of the security of belonging to our infinite God and through the comfort of being handled by God in His wisdom and love no matter what and the hope of being used by God to cause others to esteem Him even in heavenly places. And so we're tempted to doubt that God is good, that God is just, that God is sovereign over all. We're tempted to doubt that God exists even. Have you ever began to walk down that path? You're like, man, this is a horrible situation. And then you think, man, I, is God, is this all real? That's the darts. Right? Is, this, is God really who he's, maybe he's really not that He exists, He orders all things perfect, that God tells us the truth in His Word, that God loves us, and we belong to Him. We begin to try to interpret God through the lens of our circumstances. We begin to doubt that we're justified before God through Christ and are His precious chosen children, and that He's acting in wisdom. We doubt that He's acting in wisdom and love and perfect timing. So then what do we do? What do we do to stand up against that kind of attack? Our action at the moment of that temptation, we must learn to turn to the three sources of revelation that God has given to us that tell us who He is. First, creation. Remember how, how, Job, how Job heard from God, right? And what did God mostly tell him about? The greatness of God in creation, right? Look to the created world. It's like, this is the glory of God. He is and He is who He says He is. This whole of this creation screams at me that says, God is glorious. God is sovereign. And I look at Christ Himself and what Christ's life and Word teaches us about His Father. We look at the Scriptures and what they say. And we trust. We trust what God has revealed through them about Himself and about His purposes for His children. And we trust like a child. We trust. Like a desperate beggar we trust, going to the only source of life and we pray, I believe, help my unbelief. And we depend upon the Holy Spirit to keep supplying to us that kind of trust. We, we won't understand all that God is doing, nor all the reasons why, but like Job, we will see our Father for who He is in His greatness and glory, and that will be enough to humble us and trust as a waiting child depends upon his father. Like Job said, Job 42.2, I know. Now Job says, this is a statement of faith right here. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And that kind of trust will extinguish the fiery doubt, dart of doubt that would otherwise kindle a wildfire of denial and could harm us, right? And God keeps feeding us that faith, that kind of faith. And by faith, we refuse to interpret life by our own understanding, by our feelings, by what our eyes see. That sounds like an insane and contradictory statement. You, you refuse to, to interpret life by what you see? Yes. And by what my own human mind can comprehend? How do we interpret all of life? We, we interpret life by the words of God. We trust Him and His character 
and instead of ourselves. We, that's what it means to live by faith, right? Romans 3, 4, what does it say? But God be true, though everyone were a liar. Think about that. If you were standing in the midst of a decision, and, and it was clear to you that everyone else that you know was saying to do one thing, but the Word of God says to do the other thing, what would you do? Right? Faith says, I will trust God, though Everyone else is lying to me. When, when God contradicts with everyone else, I'm going to believe God. That's trust. Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, all say the just shall live by faith. Those that are declared righteous and stand righteous in Christ, live by faith. That's the shield that extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. But then, what about the dart of disobedience, for example? There's another flaming dart that Satan throws at us. Other than doubt and denial of God. Every time, listen, every time Satan tempts us to disobey God's Word, or in other words, to sin, even then we need to take up the shield of faith. Disobedience is a matter of faith. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, We don't disobey God because we believe that our disobedience will make us miserable and bring horrible consequences, right? When you make a decision to sin, we all do. We don't do it because, man, this is is just going to ruin my life. I'm going this way and I want my life to be miserable. No, we we, we make those decisions because we think this is what's going to satisfy me. This is what's going to make me happy. And we disobey because we believe that our choices and our actions will result in fulfillment. Satan says one thing will satisfy. God says another thing will satisfy. And so who will we trust? That's where it comes down to faith. When we disobey, we're trusting Satan's word on what will satisfy. When we obey God's word, we're trusting God's word on what will satisfy So how do we stand against Satan's temptations to disobey God's Word? We stand against Satan's temptations to disobey and sin by trusting that God knows us better than than we know us and can satisfy us more deeply than than anything we can do to satisfy ourselves. We, We trust God is good and that He gives what is good and that He gives what is good at a good time. That even when we feel earthly losses, Having God Himself in Christ is far better than what we deserve and more satisfying than anything we can gain from ourselves. That trust is the shield of faith that will extinguish the flaming darts of sinful desire. See, I don't, I can't, I can't resist sin by just standing there and looking at it and saying, no. No. You have to fight temptation. You have to fight sinful desire with a superior desire. One that says, that is true satisfaction and fulfillment. And that's where faith comes in. To be convinced that Christ and what He gives and what He commands satisfies while sin doesn't. That requires faith. Simple trust in the Word of God. Satan lies to me. Christ tells me the truth. That's the shield of faith by which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And, and one more thing before we finish this particular piece of armor. 
Again, I want to remind you, where does faith come from? It comes from God. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, listen, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The point of the text is simply this. One of, one of the points of this text. When you're born again, God gives you a living hope. That's final salvation. That you're going to make it. If He started a good work in you, He'll finish it. And He will bring you from point A, the beginning of your salvation, to point B, the end of your salvation, and He will keep you from falling away by guarding you through faith that He supplies to you. He'll keep feeding you faith so that you're kept and you make it all the way. 1 John 5.4 For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What is the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. Trusting God. Through Christ's victory, you have the shield of faith. So take it up. and Extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one as God enables you. The fourth piece of armor provided by God that enables us to stand in the evil day, letter E this morning, take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. A soldier's helmet was made of metal, of course, right? You can get the, get the illustration here in your mind. And it was usually bronze overlaid uh, on iron, fitting a skull cap. And it was lined on the inside with leather or some sort of cloth material, obviously, to make it a little bit more comfortable. And, and during the time of Paul's writing, some helmets were made with additional pieces to protect, like a, like a nose shield and something that even went on the back of the helmet to protect the neck, the back of the neck, and there were face flaps. and So this was a, a pretty, pretty helpful piece of armor. And it was essentially for deflecting the blow of a sword to maybe, maybe you would argue the most, the most vital part of the body. I mean, if you don't have a head, you're not getting very well uh, far uh, in, in the battle. The helmet of salvation is our spiritual helmet. It is salvation protects our soul. But what does Paul mean by salvation? That's the question. The helmet of salvation. Well, remember, Paul's not talking about becoming saved. Why? Well, he's already talking about people who are saved. He's talking to people who are already in Christ. So he's talking about something else. He's, he's writing to people who are saved and he's and, and if we look at, if you could, if you could see the, the unique form of this word, salvation, in the original language, you would notice that it is the only time this form is used in all of Paul's writings. And this word is only used three times in the whole New Testament. And so that ought to tip us off. Where is Paul getting this word from? Where is he using this? What is he talking about? Well, this form of the word salvation is very common in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so that helps us just decide, okay, well, Paul's talking about something in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament text to which he is most likely alluding 
is Isaiah 59, 17. Isaiah 59, 17. And so the writer Isaiah says, speaking of God, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. So put it simply, this verse is showing God's spiritual military advance to protect His people from sin. To call His people to turn from sin. To take hope in His salvation. In His power, in His righteousness, in His zeal to repay their enemies, His enemies, and to rescue His people. Notice that Paul or that, that Isaiah says there that salvation, that's what God put on His own head as His helmet. And that's also the helmet we have. God's salvation. God put His salvation on His head to wage war against His enemies and rescue His people from their sin. And God provided us who are in Christ the promise and power of His salvation as our helmet to fight against the evil one. In other words, you could say it like this. We keep our heads in the battle because we know that we are, and we're convinced that God is able to destroy His enemies and the enemies of our souls. Remember that little phrase in A Mighty Fortress is Our God? One little word shall fell Him. Speaking of the evil one. And in Christ, He has destroyed the work of the devil. God's salvation is our spiritual helmet. We can, we can stay in the conflict because we know that God's salvation is the power to keep us safe spiritually. God will keep us. That is certain. No one, nothing can snatch us out of the hands of the Son of God and the Father. Remember John 10, 28 and 29? Nothing can take us out of His hand. God has conquered Satan and nothing will undo the victory of Christ in our behalf and for His glory. We're kept. We're loved. And we will enjoy Christ forever. And nothing can undo that work. That knowledge and confidence is our helmet. Well, we'll pick up there next week. We've got a lot more to talk about the helmet of salvation. And I would still like to to celebrate the Lord's table with you this morning. What a glorious pair of armor we have already in the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for all that You've provided in our our armor that You have given to us. We thank You that You feed us faith. You supply through the Holy Spirit the faith we need to believe Your Word, to trust in You when we are tempted to doubt and disobey. Father, keep keep supplying Your people with this faith. We know that You will. Especially when we begin to look at our circumstances that can be overwhelming. Lord, help us to turn our eyes to see our circumstances through Your Word, through Your character and what You promise and what You say You will do. 
Thank You, Father, that our salvation is secure. Nothing can change that. Nothing can take us from Your hand. And knowing that, just knowing that, under the attack of Satan, is hope, is relief, is comfort, and enables us to keep on resisting the evil one. We know that You will keep us. You Thank You, Lord Jesus, for praying for us. Right now, You are interceding for Your own that we will be kept from the evil one, that we will be sanctified in the truth, and that we will one day see Your glory. Thank You that Your prayers for us are effectual. Father, bless our time as we share at the Lord's table. May You be glorified. We pray in Your name. Amen.